This morning is June 5th. It's Sunday morning. Our topic this morning is centrifugal Christianity. Now, who in here knows what a, what a centrifuge is? Come on, speak out. Talk out loud, brother. A centrifuge is an instrument where you put two uh, substances in there and it, yeah. and it will separate the substances. Oh, come on, you got it. A centrifuge is something that uses, obviously, centrifugal force to separate objects of different densities, right? But the idea is, in fact, you see this in the movie The Right Stuff. Now, they're not separating objects of different uh, densities, but it's another device that uses centrifugal force. You remember they're spinning around a room? It simulates gravity. What happened to them? You remember what happens to somebody when they're being spun around a room? Those G's are pushing them. And the older they are, the more skin stretches out. That flesh just gets torn away. I saw this guy going down the road on a motorcycle yesterday. And I, I thought he had on a sail, man. Those jowls on him were flapping behind him. You know, it was funny. And it began my thought process. It, see, I get sermons in the funniest places. It began my thought process. There is in our life something that we revolve around. See, our lives are supposed to revolve around Jesus, and that creates in us a force that does several things. One is, it takes the goodness from the center, and it disperses it to the outermost parts. And the second is, it causes you, your flesh, as you are focused on Jesus, to be pulled away from you. It separates things of different densities. What is good will be separated from what is bad, and the bad can be discarded. You know, the Bible teaches us that the kingdom of God is like a threshing floor, that the wheat is being beaten, the wind is blowing, the chaff is separated from the wheat. Man, I want to be in the wheat category. I want the chaff out of my life and sure don't want to fall into the chaff category myself. So we want to talk this morning about centrifugal Christianity. Centrifugal meaning that something from the x-axis forcing outward. Anything that pushes outward. Because Christians are supposed to have outward-focused lives. Something is wrong, and Christians are unhealthy when they have the me complex. You cannot do good in Christianity. Christianity demands that you lose your life and take up His. So by definition, you're becoming smaller, He's becoming bigger. And His whole purpose was to fill everything in every way. So that means you will always be focused outwards. This morning, turn to Acts. We're going to be in Acts 1 to start with. Y'all knew I was going to say Genesis, didn't you? No. (laughs) Turn to Acts 1. We'll go to Genesis later. Oh, yeah. That's great. A spouse flipping in the Word for you. Acts 1, and if you're in the Thompson chain, it's on page 1208. One of the central themes this morning, if I forget to say it, and I'm... I just want to be somewhat redundant so that you'll think about it. If your life is revolving around Jesus, all of His goodness is moving outward. You're the object of it, but it's also supposed to move through you somewhere else. You know, the Great Commission is found in Matthew 28. Everybody knows that. But most of what we quote as the Great Commission is also found in Acts. I, I, I don't know whether you realize that or not, but to go forth into all nations and baptize, all of those things, that's in the book of Matthew. But the specifics are found in the book of Acts. Watch this. Start in uh, verse 4. Luke's writing the book of Acts, and he's writing to someone named Theophilus. And it's a follow-up to his Gospel of Luke. It says, On one occasion, while he, the he being Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. That's the center point of this centrifuge, if you will. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It is totally normal for people to have a thought about themselves first. It's just not permitted to abide in you in the kingdom. Jesus is teaching them that they're going to receive a power from on high. Jesus has a specific intent for this power. I don't want to disappoint us charismatic Christians, but it's not to speak in tongues. That's just a French benefit, or fringe, not French, fringe benefit. Right now it's not popular to be French anything, is it? That's just a fringe benefit. This power is for a specified purpose. The first thing they thought of, though, was, wow, kingdom's coming to Israel then? In other words, this is going to affect us. It's going to affect our life, our town, our area. And listen to how Jesus responds. Nope, he doesn't answer their question, really. He says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Well, for what purpose, Jesus? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Jerusalem, or Zion, was the center of this wheel. And from there, you moved outward to Judea, the larger region. And then from there, you moved outward to Samaria. And then from there to the very ends of the earth. Jesus was saying, I am going to pour my divine substance out right here in Zion. And then you guys are going to be spread out so that my goodness will reach the very ends of the earth. And the neat thing about the substance is as you are being spread out in the earth, within you a separation is occurring too so that you can be more like Jesus and less like your natural selves. So the, the topic this morning is an outward-focused Christianity. It is on this very subject, not just evangelism, but how do you get filled with God's presence and what purpose? What's it for? In Ephesians 3, we see that Paul had a, a prayer. Uh, uh, you know, there are people today, uh, over a billion of them around the world, that will memorize a prayer if they think that a saint wrote it in the Middle Ages. We may not know anything about the person, whether they were good or bad, except what a church tradition says, but we'll memorize a prayer, a whole doctrine of life about what they did. Well, if we could place that kind of emphasis on people we know little about, how about Paul who gave us two-thirds of the New Testament? Let's see what his prayer for us was. Turn to Ephesians. We're going to be in the third chapter. If you're looking for Ephesians, Ephesians is on page 1299 in the Thompson chain. And we're going to start in the 14th verse. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom His whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know the love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer for you was that in your very innermost being, you would be filled with this same power 
that God exerted in Christ when He was raised from the dead. That this would create in you a hunger, a knowledge for God that would fill you with such power that it would be called to all the measure of the fullness of God. Well, on that note, turn with me to Judges and we're going to learn about the in hakor principle. This is a really important principle in your life. You can turn to the left in your Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then the book of Judges. And we're going to be in Judges 15. Because Christians' lives revolve around Jesus and His goodness is being forced into us and our flesh is being separated away, and Paul's prayer for you is that you're strengthened in your very inner being, we need to find out how to be receptive to this power. We need to find out how to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. And that's kind of a high goal, isn't it? Jesus had so much of God in Him that He was declared to be God. And please don't theologians out there beat me up over the way that I'm saying that. You understand what I mean. He was declared to be the perfect representation of God. And Paul said, I'm praying that your knowledge will grow of the width and depth and height of God's love so that you can be filled with His power to the, all the fullness of Christ. That's quite a goal. That's pretty full, isn't it? Samson teaches us a little bit in his life. Not the most... Samson's probably not the guy you would think was the most spirit-led, would you? I mean, Samson had some pretty serious vices in his life, didn't he? But what was he born for? Samson was born for a specific purpose. Samson appeared on the scene because his people were in slavery. And God had this child supernaturally born for the express purpose of liberating them from the enemy by taking the fight to the enemy. And there's something that we can learn about his life. I've preached on this chapter a hundred times, but never on this. In chapter 15, starting in verse 9. Y'all awake? Y'all okay? Yeah, y'all going to have to talk to me this morning. You'll hurt my feelings. I'll cry and run out. You know how delicate I am. Verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men from Judah went down to the cave on the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Don't you remember that the Philistines are rulers over us? Why have you done this to us? Thanks on just a separate topic this morning. I want to encourage you. When God calls you to do something, When He sets you apart uniquely with leadership skills, with power, with a calling, with vision, with direction, it's not just the Philistines of the world who come against you. It wouldn't be much of a calling if all of your brothers understood it and it would take no courage to do if all you got was fanfare and support. God calls men and women that are willing to stand up, though none go with them, and do what He tells them to do. And every man of God that ever accomplished anything didn't just get resistance from the world. That's a given. We don't even consider that. They got resistance from the church. Now, I hope not to be that resistance in your life. But I can read the Word and see that chances are there are times that I won't understand what God's doing with you and without meaning to will come against it. I'm not telling you that so that you can say, oh, wow, one day Eric's going to put pressure on me to do something that's not God's will. I'm telling you, nobody usurps your right to hear from God. Nobody has authority over the calling that is on your life. If it were up to the people of Israel, they would have stayed under the Philistines. But God appointed a man named Samson to take the fight to the enemy, whether everybody understood it or not. 
And you find out something. God does not rule by consensus. When you hear from God, you do what God said. To hell with the consequences. When you got saved, you signed up for a reckless abandonment of self and what everybody else thinks. You have to live like that if you're going to be a Christian and be successful. The reality is if you don't, you compromise, you become weak, and pretty soon you're ineffectual in the kingdom and not dangerous to the enemy. Samson was dangerous to the enemy. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock at Etm and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Wow, that's all he was asking of his brothers. I'm here to begin your deliverance. I'm here to save you from this enemy. Just promise me you won't kill me. You can hinder me. You can speak against me. You can be negative. Just just don't kill me. That's not a big request, is it? Agreed, they said. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. Those of you that have heard me teach this before, they bound him with new ropes because the devil never comes against you with that same old vice that you've beaten so many times before. It's a new attack, and it usually springs right from within your circle of loved ones. Why is that? If some guy out on the interstate flips me off, that, that rolls off me like water off a duck's back. I don't even think twice about it. If Matthew was angry and said mean things to me, that would really hurt, wouldn't it? That's the new attack that the enemy brings against you. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. When God's Spirit is upon you, and remember, we're going to learn today that His desire is to always be filling you. You're in this centrifuge. This centrifugal force is forcing it out your way if you'll just be receptive to it. There's not a thing in the world, not any attack, no matter how strong, no matter how new, no matter how much it catches you off guard, that will not fall off you like charred flax. There is not a rope that the devil can tie you with that cannot be broken the moment you walk into the presence of God. You've heard the the phrase in the Old King James Bible, the anointing breaks the yoke? It does. Last week we learned about warfare. You remember war? Not the Edwin Starr song, but war. What was it an acronym for? Worship, attitude, revelation. When you feel bound with ropes, you should begin to worship. That allows you to move into an attitude that is pleasing to God and He can give you His direction. And then whatever you will fall off you because you have the right perspective in life. You know what you're after and you can set your face like flint and God has somebody He can empower. You're not just dilly-dallying around in the tulips. You know where you're going. You're on a mission for God and that's something He can bless. We should live intentioned lives. My brother was teaching me that yesterday. So they falls off like charred flax. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone I have killed a thousand men. Now, I've taught this before and I don't want to bore you. But Samson looked around and he found a fresh jawbone. This is fresh for a couple reasons. One is, in the natural, he wanted something that was strong. You get an old brittle jawbone and it wouldn't work as well as one that's fresh. 
This is true in the spiritual realm because we need to be looking for a fresh anointing. Jesus prayed, give us this day our daily bread. Too often Christians are living on an experience that was ten years prior, that was two years prior, or worse yet, an experience that occurred in someone else's life. We need to look for that fresh jawbone with which we can take the fight to the enemy. We need to look for that every day of our life. There is no day off in the kingdom of God. You are surrounded by an enemy, but they that are with you are more than they that are against you. You have to look for your marching orders each day. You have to grab hold of your anointing each day. But none of that's why we're here. And none of that's why we're in Judges. We're in Judges for the Enhakor principle. When he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramah Lehi. Why did he throw it away? He understood the fresh anointing that he needed. It wouldn't be good tomorrow. What you did yesterday for God is great. He's looking for what you are doing for Him today. This salvation walk is an ever-increasing walk. It is a walk that must take you further today than you were yesterday. There is no camping out along the path. And those of you that really love the Lord, if you've ever been in a place where you tried, it gets uncomfortable really quick. God will make sure that you do not camp out in a place of comfort because He's called you ever higher. And He set a goal before you that was the measure of Christ. Lord, it's not possible to rest if that's your goal. Be perfect, for I am holy, says the Lord. He throws it away, and he didn't leave high. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned. And he was revived. So the spring was called Enhakor, meaning fountain of him that prayed. And it is still there in Lehi. Saints, we do not experience the reviving of our strength. We do not experience the opening up of the hollow place because we don't allow ourselves to be emptied out. Samson fought until he was near death and cried out to God, Surely you're not going to let me die. And God says, no, I'm a fountain for those that cry to me. Sometimes we're praying for more to happen. We're praying for more, more love, more power, more of you in my life, and we're not doing anything with what He's already put in your life. You want more God to move in your life. You want more miracles, more anointing, more power. Use what you have. Pour your life out like a drink offering. Empty yourself so that God can fill you. It's required. There's no reason to pour more water if the vessel is already full. There's no reason to add to it if nothing is coming out of it. It's fat, full, and satisfied. And the church is too fat, full, and satisfied. That's why we sit on our salvation and pray, someone else go. It's not my calling. We write checks. We send other people, but we do nothing. You pray for the revival overseas and do not walk across the street to meet your neighbors. It should not be this way. We are supposed to be emptying ourselves. You are in a centrifuge. Centrifugal force is pushing goodness through you, out of you, separating the wheat from the chaff. So that not just in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, and not just in Judea, but also in Samaria, and not just in Samaria, but to the very ends of the earth, God can be all in all. 
because His presence is radiating out in every direction and you are a vessel in which He can flow through. It requires you not to be stagnant water, but to be water teeming with life. The in principle is God will be a fountain to you if you empty yourself. in means a fountain to Him that cried out. How often do you just get thirsty enough for God that you cry out, I'm thirsty, Lord! I mean, we'll sing it. We'll sing it, but you have to live it. You don't get thirsty when you're not... Did anybody get thirsty moving? Huh? How many bottles of water did you drink moving? Why is that? You were expending yourself. You were pouring out what you had. And that in the service of others. So what did they do? They provided water for you there. Knowing that you needed to be replenished. You want more of God in your life? Show Him that you need to be replenished because you are thirsty and He'll open up even a hollow place. There was no water here. Lehi was a dry place. There was no water. It was just a hollow place. Dull, devoid of anything except the anointing that Samson brought into it. And God opened it up and they changed the name forever. It changed from Jawbone to Enhakor, a fountain for him who cries. Our God is a fountain if we'll cry out to Him. Turn to Philippians 2. Y'all still awake? Y'all still with me? Y'all getting ramped up to go pour yourselves out? Come on, brother. Steve says, you should have preached this last week, brother. (laughs) I'm so proud of this church. Everybody that could be there and help was there. And those that were not there for some reason expressed the desire to be. Prayed, offered. Look, I'll drop what I'm doing if you just need me. That is awesome. You know, how many churches could say 100% of the people in the church are striving after God and pouring out themselves? You say, well, that's easy. You only have 20 people. Well, I got the right 20 then, my friend. I'll multiply you guys over and over and over. Give me a core group of three or 30 mighty fighting men and we'll change a whole kingdom. Give me 11 that are totally sold out like Jesus had and the world will change because what you have will not stay here by definition. It goes to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You can't contain it. Have y'all seen the way Yvette signs her emails? Seasoning Lafayette. She understands that she is the salt that God intended to bring flavor to the earth. And she signs her emails, Seasoning Lafayette. What an awesome principle to live by. You are supposed to be God's seasoning wherever you are. Now let me ask you something. Is it the choice food? Is it the food that already tastes very good that gets lots of salt? No. What do you do? Not that my wife's ever done this. It was when I cooked, I'm sure. But when that pot roast is horrible you and, and thick and tough and difficult to consume, it gets more seasoning, doesn't it? Because you need to make it palatable. Well, friends, if you're in a dark place, if you're in a difficult place, God put you there to make it palatable. Do everything without arguing. Do everything without complaining that you might be proved to be righteous and shine like the stars in the heavens. This is God's intent. Not for you to join the other team and taste like rotten flesh. Go in Philippians 2. It's on page 1305 in the Thompson chain anyway. Philippians 2 verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. See, y'all thought I made that up a while ago. 
Do everything without arguing or complaining, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. How can you hold out the word of life, by the way? It had to be given to you. There's that centrifuge working. It was given to you and now it's working out of you to someone else. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice for all of you. You too should be glad and rejoice for me. Paul described his life as something that was being poured out for the benefit of others. What are you pouring your lives out for? What is it that you're working, that you're laboring for? What are you expending your energy on? Is it something that's beneficial for the kingdom of God? Will you be able to stand one day like Paul and say, I have done it. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. And now the time for my departure is near. Will you be able to say that and look back and see that you were continually being poured out, which meant you had to be continually being filled with God? I want that. I want that with all of my heart. It's okay. Have you? She's in here. I can't brag on her today. But do you know that sometimes people go, wow, how does so-and-so keep that kind of schedule? I can't believe all sister or brother does. You can do more by doing more. Because when you're devoid of your strength, God adds strength. When you're like that little ferret that only sticks his head out of the hole to see what is coming to eat him next, when all your life is about conserving what you already have, go home and read the parable of the talents. How did that work out? Even what you have will be taken from you. Christianity demands that you're outward focused. That's what the Christian life is. There's an innate tendency to want to protect what you have. Not, I hate this word. Don't use these words around me. Overly tired. Overly heated. Overly exerted. I hate it. It's disgusting to me. It makes me want to... What's a nice word for that? Yeah, it makes me want to heave. That's ridiculous. There is no such thing as overly. The more you pour out, the more you get in. The truth is, if you want to reach a place of equilibrium, it better be flowing through you. When water gets nasty is when it's stagnant. You cannot work too hard for Jesus. You cannot outwork His ability to strengthen you. The Bible says that He's looking for people to strengthen. Looking for people whose hearts are fully committed. How sad it is that the King of the universe has to look. Saints, be easily found. Be easily found. Quit waiting for someone else to step up. Quit waiting, hoping that it will just get done. Stand up and say, I'll do it because God's with me. So I have to be at work in the morning. So what? God can give you strength for your work. So you didn't get enough sleep last night. God can supply what you lack. Paul went hungry, naked, in danger of animals. All of these things. Did you benefit from his life? At the reward ceremony, would you like to be in Paul's stead? My goodness. It's clear that Paul was being poured out Peter said in Second uh, Peter 1, 12-15, he begins talking about it. And he says, man, I, I know you know these things, but I thought it was good. I should remind you of this stuff. You know it, but I want you to think on it. I want you to dwell on it. You know why? Do you know why, saints? 
Because my departure is near. Peter was in his waning hours. He knew that his life was coming to a close. And all he could think about was others around him. He needed to remind them of what they had learned. He needed to get them to put it into practice because his life was spent being emptied. This is the in-hakor principle. Well, what's the second half? The first half is, if you are emptied, that's the first half. The second is, you will be filled. Every empty vessel you can find, God can fill. Every empty vessel you can get, God will fill. Was Peter filled? In Acts 2.4, it says everybody in the upper room was. 120 of them. He was filled. Was Saul filled when he, before he came to Paul? Oh yeah, Ananias went. They saw it. Something happened to Saul that Ananias could see. Everybody would agree they were filled with the Spirit, right? Well, then why in Acts 9? Let's turn there. Acts 9 is where he, he got, where Saul, Paul got filled. Acts 13, listen to what it says. Acts 13, if you're looking for it, is on page 1226. Go back one more page, 1225, because we're going to be in verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Anti-Jesus, Bar-Jesus who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul, because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. And the guy gets blinded. Say, well, if Paul was filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts 9 while Ananias was praying, how does it say that he was filled with the Holy Ghost here? Paul's life was one that was continually being emptied out. He was pouring it out in the service of others so that when he needed God, when he had expended his energy on the enemy, in Hakor followed him around. Whatever hollow place he could find himself in, God's power was on hand for him. So that a, a sorcerer opposes him? No problem. He knew God was with him. How did he know? Because he had been doing God's work. There is a limitless supply... All of the power in the entire universe, all of God's power is at your disposal. It's just used at God's discretion. Well, how do you know that God will pour His power into you? When you're in His service, doing His work. Paul was confident of that. Peter in Acts 2 is filled. In Acts 4, it speaks of him being filled again. In fact, you find out when you do a word study in this area that this speaks of a continual filling to completeness. You're never complete until you are glorified. That filling is supposed to be ongoing. I've heard people say, well, that's because it leaks out. No, friends, it does not leak out. It has to be poured out. 
It's a willing choice. You decide to give up what's yours. You decide to sacrifice on the altar and because of it, God's anointing falls on you. It has to be willful. Turn with me to 2 Kings. In 2 Kings, 4th chapter, page 409 in your Thompson chain, a woman comes to Elijah with a complaint. Elisha. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as slaves. Elijah replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elijah said, Go around and ask all of your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour the oil into all the jars. And as each is filled, put it to a side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. We need to rid ourselves of this fear that we're going to pour out and be left without. That you're going to serve and somehow because of that, your needs aren't going to be met. That if you give way what is yours, you're going to be left without something. Every empty jar you present before God will be filled. Every empty jar. We serve the kind of God that you cannot out. You can't exhaust His resources. He says, go get a jar and don't get just a few, baby. Get them from every neighbor you can. Every empty jar got filled. This is kind of like the little boy who's sitting there watched Jesus feed thousands of people, or at least he got to see that. I said, uh, where are we going to get food for all these people? And disciples, disciples of Jesus are suggesting that it be bought. The little boy comes up and offers the little bit that he had. The very little bit that he had. Not scared that he wouldn't have anything if he gave it to Jesus. I don't know where those twelve basketfuls that were left over went, but I suspect the little boy packed them home to his family. When you pour yourself out for God, you get back more than you ever started with. It always works. It works so well that way that people have twisted it into a scheme for financial gain. God, the investment program. The fact that it is true doesn't mean you can enter in with false motives and be blessed by God. It doesn't work that way. The Gospel is not a means for greed and financial gain. But because this principle is true and we know it's true and it's in the Word and you see that the few who do pour out all that they have are rewarded with more. Others have said, I want some. I want some. I'll do some of that. This is why books are selling at Walmart the way that they're selling. People see the blessing on those righteous lives and they want some of it. From Second Kings, go with me to Matthew. Put a finger in Jeremiah if you want. In the fifth chapter of Matthew, we have a verse that if you can't quote, I would just be totally shocked. 
But I want to emphasize this to you. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. You didn't get thirsty the other day because you weren't doing anything while you were moving. You got thirsty because you were exhausting all that you had. You know what real hunger is? Most of us never experience it. Real hunger is when you go a really long time without food and you need it. When the Bible says that Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights and then was hungry, can we all agree that after 40 days His hunger was different than yours 40 minutes after you eat? When the Bible speaks of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's talking about this innate desire for survival. The kind of, the, the kind of urge that a man in a desert would have for water. If you want to be filled by God, you need to allow yourself to be exhausted of all of your resources. You need to be willing to pour yourself out so that there is something there to fill. And His Word promises that He will fill it. If you don't remember anything else, remember the in Hakor principle. He's a fountain for those that cry out to Him. You've got to get to a place where you'll cry out though. Y'all in Jeremiah? Said you keep a finger there. No? We're going to be in the second chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is right after the book of Isaiah. The second chapter starts on page 836 in the Thompson chain. It's an interesting sin that God says Israel had embarked upon. In the 13th verse, listen to this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken Me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot... Hold water. God had desired a vessel, a people. He called this people a prince, a ruler, that He could pour His very presence into so that they would reflect Him and so that it would be sure that they could be poured into others. They didn't retain this knowledge of God, the book of Romans says. They strayed from this, instead craving to be filled with another substance unauthorized fire, uh, the quail, whatever it is in any shadow and type that you want to look at, and it caused their cisterns to be broken cisterns. Christians are often going from meeting to meeting, wanting to be prophesied to, wanting to experience a move of God in worship, wanting to be entertained, but they have no capacity to hold on to what God is pouring out. It's insatiable because it's not being used for anything. But when everything that you get is for the benefit of someone else, when everything that God gives you, you have purposed in your mind how it would bless someone else. Let's be honest. If you walk outside today and laying on the sidewalk is a $100 bill, is the first thought what you can spend it on? Or is the first thought who you know that might be blessed by this, that might need it? As Christians, we have to revolutionize our thinking. You have to realize that everything that is moving your way came from one source in the centrifuge. That centrifugal force is pushing it to you and you'll get what you need out of it, but it's supposed to flow right on down the road to someone else. This creates a body of believers that looks and acts just like Jesus and the power of God is there. Peter and John were happy to look at a guy and say, silver and gold, we don't have. What we have, we freely give you. In our century, what we have, we write books about. 
to make money. What we have, we put on CD so that you have to buy it. What we have, whatever God's given us, we charge you for. This was not always this way. The early church had all things in common and it worked very well. You say, well, that's communism. No, communism's when you remove God from the equation. When God orchestrates it, it works just fine. Jeremiah 2.13 accused Israel of having a broken cistern. Look at Jeremiah 17. See if this doesn't ring a bell with you. A couple pages to your right. In Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 12, this is on page 859 in the Thompson chain. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake You will be put to shame. Those who turn away from You will be written in the dust. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Written in the dust? God, I always wondered what Jesus was writing in the dust while they were throwing stones at that woman. Whose names would be written in the dust? The next verse. Because they had forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. God's desire, you find in John 4, is that you drink of Him. You remember I described Christianity? Our lives were revolving around Jesus and the goodness that was in Him like a centrifuge was being pushed out into us and objects of different densities were separated. Our flesh was being separated from the spiritual life God had for us. Well, it's more complicated than that really. It's more like little solar systems. Because once you receive this, God desires to be in you a spring of living water radiating out towards others. He had announced Himself in John 4. He had announced Himself to the woman in Samaria who went and told everybody that she ever knew about Him. I will be in you a spring of living water. For this spring to work right, it has to have an outlet. If there's no way for the water to get out, if there's no flow of water, you, you can't really have a spring, can you? Water Matthew's drinking came from a spring that went under the ground. It found an outlet somewhere. The things that God has given you have to find an outlet somewhere. You want to find unhappy Christians. You find Christians, they're consumed with themselves, what they're calling us, who they are, how their needs will be met. Them, them, them. You find a happy Christian, if they're focused on their calling, it's how do I serve someone else? Not how do I be great. Not how do I have others esteem me. Not how... How can I have them think I'm a great guy? It is, how can I best meet Wade's needs? When you do that, God pours Himself through you and you become a spring of living water. This is how the Father can really make His abode with you. Because that's when you have His substance in you. Laboring with God's power. Can we all agree that your strength's pretty limited? Yeah, that's why you're tempted to hold on to it. Don't go do that. Don't go do this. I mean, you have to... We live in a conservation society as far as ourselves. We'll expend all the earth's resources without a thought, you know. Drive our Suburbans. Uh, every family have five cars. We don't think a thing about that. But when it comes to expending your energy, oh, that's a protected precious resource. You know, we, we don't just pour that out because you can't go buy it at the pump, right? The apostles had a little different attitude about this. Turn with me to Colossians. We've got 15 more minutes. Can you all exert a little energy? Be excited about Jesus for 15 more minutes? Good, brothers. My son said, Daddy, I've heard your sermons before. 
Colossians 1, starting in uh, verse 28. We proclaim Him, Him being Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all of His energy, which so powerfully works in me. How did Paul get? How did Paul get God's energy so powerfully working in him? He got it the same way Samson did in that example. He was expending himself. He was pouring himself out at every turn and found himself in a hollow place and said, Lord, I need more. You can see that what you just gave me was used for you. I am trustworthy for more power, more anointing, more of you in my life. You remember the parable of the talents? If you were faithful with what you had been given, what happened? You were given more. You find yourself weak and powerless? It's because you're not using what you do have. Put your faith into action and God will grant you more. Paul said His energy so powerfully works in me. I get tired, guys. But the, and, and I'll be honest, there are, there are times where I think, man, I need to study. I need to prepare. I can't go do that because I need to spend some time for your benefit, right? That's my thought. The best services we ever have, the best ones we ever have, is when we're all night in an attic rewiring or we're all weekend moving or something because that's a chance for God's strength to work through you. Less of you there and more of God. Throw yourself in the centrifuge. Let God's power work through you. Paul did it. Turn with me to Ephesians. I put these in order for you. No, they're not really. You've got to go to the left. In Ephesians, look at how he says this. It's the third chapter, starting in the 20th verse. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him. I'm sorry, that's 420. My page is stuck together. 320. It's on page 1300. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Wouldn't you like to be confident in your saying God's power at work within me? Well, you have to pour yourself out to get that to happen. One more on that note and then we'll move on. Go back to Philippians. Back to the right. Look at 2.12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Guys, I know we teach all about God's power in you. We teach all about His love, His mercy for you. don't want anybody to be condemned when you're striving for Jesus and stumble. But the Bible does tell you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There are some thoughts, some attitudes of the heart that should make you fearful that they even enter your mind at times. Salvation is not just a greasy grace kind of thing. It's required that you do the work of the kingdom, that you be thinking about the kingdom, that you be so in love with Jesus that it shows in your life in every way. 
Paul tells you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to His good purpose. God's will. He's manipulating circumstances. He's working in your life so that you will act according to His will and good purpose for your life. You know, when you see that, I was talking with a brother yesterday, had a really mature view. Truthfully, in my thinking, he was wronged horribly. I mean, as, as an arbitrary third party, I'm looking at a situation and I see something that to me looks like injustice to the point where I want to rise up and say something except it's not, not my field to worry about. And you know what? The right attitude was, no, Eric, don't worry about it. This is God working in me because He has a purpose in my life. Every tool is a shaping tool at that point. Every obstacle that you meet is an opportunity for God to reshape you, for power to come out of you. What an awesome way to go through life. Diana went through some horribly negative things in a work environment. And you know what? We can look back now over a few months and go, wow, look at God's hand of provision. Look at how God has shaped this event. He's awesome. But it only happens when you're totally sold out for His kingdom. Doesn't happen just sitting on the couch watching a Billy Graham crusade. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't happen when you're just thinking about blessing somebody. It'd be a good idea. We live in a kingdom that requires action. I remind you pretty often that the Jewish thought could care less what you believe. They want to see what you do. The entire book of James is written around that principle. It is great that you're a theologian. It is great that you can quote end times prophecies. I think that it's fantastic you understand theological concepts in the Bible and if you don't do anything with it, all that makes you is more guilty. All that makes you is more condemned. The Pharisees had great knowledge, but the acts they did were not the acts that God wanted. John the Baptist looked at them and said, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? First go produce fruit in keeping with repentance and then come back here. You say, Oh, that was those bad Pharisees. Pharisees is the modern day church, friends. It's not the drunk in the bar. That's not a Pharisee. It's those of us that have been schooled, taught, trained the Word of God and do not do what the Word of God says. Well, I don't like to think about that though. I don't want to be in that category. Well, don't. Don't. Pour yourself out that God will fill you. There's a bunch of scriptures that we don't have to read all of that speak of the way that this occurs. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We'll read a few of these. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. Out of a most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Do you think that I misread that? Their overflowing joy and extreme poverty. My goodness. How can those two exist together? They're in God's centrifuge. They're being, their whole lives are revolving around Jesus. So although there's extreme poverty there, you know what else there is? Overflowing joy and rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. They did not do so as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. 
These guys had extreme poverty and generosity welled up in them. They went way beyond their ability and they had an overflowing joy. These guys were not only pouring themselves out, they had won God's heart in such a way that He was continually being poured into them. That spring was bubbling over constantly into the people's lives around them. That's what a Christian's life is supposed to be like. Turn to your right. Back to Philippians. In the first chapter of Philippians, the ninth verse. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. That's where we started today. More and more. Yeah, we have love. We have faith. We have wisdom. We have all of those things. Everything in the Bible is in an ever-increasing measure because we're progressing towards the fullness of the measure of Christ. That's what Paul's prayer for us was, was that all of these things be filled to the measure that Jesus Himself possesses them. He has all things. That's a pretty full measure. Colossians, keep going to your right. Two. Verse 6, So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. A Christian's life is supposed to be overflowing with the goodness of God. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, the third chapter. Eleventh verse. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other, for everyone else. Just as ours does. May He strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of the Lord our God and our Father when, when our Lord Jesus comes with all His holy angels. Have you noticed how many times strengthening and overflowing flows together? It's the in process. It is always there. As you're poured out, He pours in. While you're in Thessalonians, look at the fourth chapter, the first verse. Finally, brothers, we instruct you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're now living. Not a problem here. You're living like this. But now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. I'm not talking to you as if you don't know that servanthood is a good thing as if you don't know that you should be others and outward focused, I'm telling you to do it more than you did yesterday. So, well, I did an awful lot yesterday. That's good. It's a good goal today. And the next day, more than today. It is a continual, ever-increasing quota that you have because this is what pleases God. And you know what? You can't outgive Him. You can't outserve Him. You can't outlast Him. He'll be there to elevate you, to strengthen you, to encourage you. We're going to turn to one more, and then we're going to close. Second Thessalonians. See, all the T's are together there. It's easy for you. Actually, two scriptures. One more on this subject, and then we close. I don't want you to think I'm being dishonest with you. In Second Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 3, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in the persecutions and trials you are now enduring. All of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. 
And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are now suffering. What an awesome, awesome praise. They're in the midst of trials and persecution, and yet their faith and love is growing and enduring. And Paul stands back and says, guys, this is evidence that God's uh, justice, that God's right in what He does. This is evidence for the whole world to see. I want to be a part of that evidence. I want to be somebody who is continually being filled with God and it proves to everybody where God's anointing is and that He's right in doing so. Most of the time when we want things, we want things for us. Jesus wants you to want things for everyone else. This is how He said you become great in the kingdom by serving the very least. We have the attitude that's just the opposite. The person who serves the least and is served by everyone is great. And you know these things. You hear them in church all of the time. You know the principles here. But getting it into your actual lives and actions is harder. And so it's good when you get the opportunity. It's good to pour yourself out. Then God can fill you. In Second Peter, which is our last Scripture today, He says it as well as I think could possibly be said. So we'll close with his words. It's Second Peter 1. I'm baffled by this passage. I quote it almost every time we read because I'm still, I don't know whether it's a good thing to say, but tickled pink at the thought that the very substance of God is placed in me. I'm more excited about that than if you gave me a Corvette. I'm more excited about that than if, if I hit the lottery to think that the very same substance... I mean, substances matter, y'all. I mean, this is something. It's not, it's not, not... It's something that was God is placed in us. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of Him... You remember Paul told us he wanted our knowledge to grow so that we'd be strengthened in inner, our inner being. Here he says His divine power, this Peter, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Through God's promises, you've been made to participate in God's very nature. How do you get more of His nature? You use the substance that He's already given you. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God has given you His very nature in your inner being 
so that as you use what He's given you, as what is in you radiates outwards towards other people, and your knowledge increases, and your love increases, and your faithfulness increases, and all of those things are in you in increasing measure, as this spring is welling up within you constantly, you become effective in His kingdom, which is the reason that He called you. The Bible tells us to find out what pleases the Lord. One thing that pleases the Lord very much is when you are hungry for Him so that you might feed others. Let that be on your hearts this week. Let that be a word that you dwell on. Don't be entertained by it on a Sunday only. Dwell on it. Because what is guaranteed to happen this week is you will find out that God has a big wheat field out there. And He's desiring to use you as a laborer. And as you labor with your strength, there's going to be a million times that your flesh will want to stop, want to do something different, something easier, something less defacing, whatever it might be. But if you want His energy powerfully working in him, in you, you must be about His work. He spoke to us during worship today and said, this is in gathering time. Get the wheat into the barn. I want to be about the kingdom's business. I want more of Him in my life and it does not come through singing a song. That worship puts you in the right attitude so that you can receive. But in itself, it's not the means to the end. You have to do. You have to do. Stand up and let's pray.